everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by one of our colleagues, Max Eden. He is a research fellow at AEI, where he focuses on education reform and K-12 and early childhood education. Before he was at AEI, he was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And Ian, one of the reasons that I wanted to have Max on, welcome Max, is to talk about a story that caught my eye. You know, I'm from Massachusetts, and uh, there was a story recently about the Boston Public Schools Mm. where a principal at one of the schools, the high schools, was actually knocked unconscious by a student in her school during school hours. And I wanted to talk about kind of what this violence represents and get Max's opinion on it. So thanks for joining us, Max. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Max. Yeah, this case in Boston seems like not an aberration. Like maybe these, maybe this case is linked to other policies that have been implemented that purportedly were to address increases in violence, but in weird ways have actually maybe propagated more violence. What do you think about that? No, I, I think that is almost certainly the case broadly. And it, it's interesting and notable that the, the superintendent of Boston Public Schools is a woman named Brenda Casillas, who before coming to Boston was the, the state superintendent in Minnesota. When she was the state superintendent in Minnesota, she pushed very aggressively from the state level these quote unquote restorative justice policies onto schools all across the state by pressuring them, by sending letters saying, hey, we see that you have different rates of discipline by race, by disability, by the intersection between the two. That's unacceptable. That's the sign of a potential human rights violation. And so therefore, we need you to apply these new policies that are going to be designed to fix the school to prison pipeline by lowering suspensions, lowering expulsions, lowering arrests. What we saw in schools across Minnesota, we saw what I think we're seeing here in Boston is that what these policies do in practice is they send a very strong signal to principals who then send a strong signal to teachers to just not discipline. <laughs> the easiest way to get your numbers down is to simply either not punish or not record punishment for, and, and sometimes both, misbehavior, which effectively supplies a significant subsidy to misbehavior for students. And so this is a this kind of consequence stream unfolding is by no means new by no means unique to Boston or Minnesota. It's something that has happened in in school districts across the country as these policies have been pushed and very likely will be again pushed from a federal level. So so Max, do you think that parents are starting to notice this more? I mean, I guess a lot of parents probably, if it doesn't directly involve their child, you know, don't think a lot about what school discipline policies are. But safety has clearly been on the mind of a lot of school parents recently. Can you talk about what seems to be this kind of awakening on the issue? Yeah, I suspect that we are at the, the beginning of a, a broader public recognition of what these policies actually mean and what these policies actually do. And I hope that looking back, history will show a kind of a turning point in what happened in Loudoun County and then what happened in, in Virginia thereafter, because it became very clear that the school superintendent and school board falsely denied the existence of a rape in a school bathroom. And further reporting confirmed that they did not submit all sorts of other safety violations to the state. They kind of systematically appear to have swept things under the rug 
And that's a very common consequence of this discipline reform policy, right? Because to get suspensions, expulsions, arrests down, you just you just don't wait to see. And worst case, something happens and parents might not necessarily connect it to anything bigger. And they'll hear that restorative justice is something that is necessary for equity, for racial justice, for closing school to prison pipeline, and they'll accept it. But the the reality is I think parents will soon start to be making the kind of broader political connection between things they're seeing in their school and these macro trends affecting schools and society, because there's a, a very kind of strong parallel echo between a lot of kind of critical race theory lines of thought and the lines of thought that animate this restorative justice push, right? The prima facie assumption that any statistical disparity means that there's racism, and therefore the main policy goal becomes fighting the alleged racism without such an eye to the consequences of that. I think parents will be starting to to piece these things together. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if this kind of restorative justice approach becomes understood in the public eye as a critical race theory approach to discipline, which in many ways it is. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing that always amazes me is that once you start looking through the world through the prism of race and you see a racial disparity up, oh, that must be racial discrimination. Then what that also does, it narrows your universe of solutions, right? So then you must have a race-based intervention. But in that same piece that Naomi wrote, you know, you're quoted saying, well, perhaps there might be other factors that aren't discounting that there is a racial disparity, but it's actually introducing that there are other kinds of reasons. What would those be, Max? And why do you think it's so difficult for folks to expand their aperture to understand that there, there's lots of reasons why these disparities might exist. It's a strange phenomenon, right? I have a very, very liberal old friend, and he and I were talking about this years ago, and he pointed out that either the entire theory of the problem that underlies the case for the welfare state is false, and poverty, family structure, crime, systemic and historic injustices don't matter at all, <laughs> or this whole discipline reform idea is true. You have to kind of suspend all of the priors that you bring into your understanding of sociology, of humanity, to get to a point where you expect, as frankly, the Biden Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights Assistant Secretary has maintained as a fact, that there are no actual behavioral differences between groups in America. It's, it's a sad truth, but we have every reason to expect that there would be. There is a substantial difference in family structure between different races, a substantial difference in poverty, especially in concentrations of poverty. There are all these kind of deep sociological factors that normally critical race theorists like to kind of document to paint the picture of broader societal systemic racism that are true and on their own terms convincing, but advocates of restorative justice seem to just kind of pretend as though even all of that might affect academic achievement, and therefore we should do all these policies to help academic achievement even though it will affect other things, it won't affect the way the kids behave. We have no reason to expect that it won't, every reason to expect that it will, and, and plenty of evidence to, to suggest that it does. But if you don't allow for that aperture to be opened, then you blame the schools entirely for the problem. And then the mission of the school ceases to be, you know, how do we take the kids that we have from the backgrounds that they have and help get them on a trajectory that is, you know, better than it might be if we weren't doing as good of a job as a school and becomes well, if it's all our fault as an institution, and if we're institutionally racist, and if we know we're institutionally racist, because look at these numbers, 
then you start to fix the numbers and you can very easily start to ignore what actually happens. I'll just give kind of one other quick story, Ian and, and Naomi, because I just, this is a kind of a friend of a friend anecdote, but it's, I heard it two days ago. It is in keeping with a lot of stuff that I heard when I was diving into this more recently, but a, a friend of a friend has a school counselor in a district in the DMV area. There was a fight in the playground and one of the students who was a victim of the fight had trouble breathing. And several of the teachers were reluctant to take the student to the nurse because if he took the student to the nurse, then it would be documented as a fight and they feared that they as teachers would, in, would get in trouble. And this individual did take the student to the nurse. The fight was documented and the school psychologist did get in trouble for it. Oh my gosh. Incredible. So that's, that's how narrow the aperture can be. You have a student who is having trouble breathing, is possibly in grave medical danger. And you know that you'll get punished as a teacher because it will reflect badly on your principal if the thing is documented. That's absolutely amazing. But I think in keeping with how this is a policy that doesn't put student safety first, I mean, that's the, that's the incredible part here that so many other students are in danger as a result of some of this restorative justice policies. I was actually thinking about the family structure point. There was this video that went around recently about the dads on duty, this group of men in a Louisiana school district. There was so much violence going on in the school and so much fighting that these dads sort of formed their own kind of, I don't know whether you want to call it a security force, a coalition, whatever it was, where they, they are actually patrolling the halls of the school. So this was sort of sent around as this kind of like feel good story where look at these guys who are taking responsibility. But it made me wonder, A, what point things had gotten to that these parents had decided it was so important for them to actually enter the school. And B, it made me think that, you know, there really is something to this idea that you need the parents around and that you need in particular the fathers around in order to be emphasizing the need for the kids to behave themselves. Maybe this kind of like a backhanded way of doing it, but I hope other people took that lesson too. Right. And and bear in mind, they weren't promising restorative justice. No, 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 no. (laughs) They were were saying they were bringing real authority to the situation. And, And that is, I mean, on the one hand, that's a it suggests, as you said, Naomi, that, that something has gone terribly awry within the school. And if the school can't muster the, the moral, authority, inspire the moral authority in the students to maintain order, it has to get to that point. Something's gone gravely wrong. On the other hand, you know, there's a way in which it, it, it does strike one as a feel-good story because it, in a way, that's how it's supposed to work. <laughs> Parents are supposed to lend their moral authority to the schools and back the school's play. And that is what helps the schools enforce the rules and have those rules be respected is, is, is the specter and the knowledge that, you know, the parents are behind the schools. Unfortunately, one thing that the Obama administration did under the auspices of this dear colleague letter that pushed these restorative justices into schools all across the country was it required school districts to host training sessions with parents to train them as to how to appeal disciplinary decisions that they felt were unfair with respect to their kids in school. Right. So this is the actual the total inversion of it. You have OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, telling telling schools to tell parents, here is how you subvert our moral authority <laughs> as we're trying to act in loco parentis, which some parents might do, probably not the, the parents that you want exerting their authority within the schools, and then the broader moral ecosystem suffers. 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, that's a complaint that you've heard about for years in a sense that, you know, teachers who complain that, you know, whatever happens, the parents don't back them up and that the parents are, whether it's a grade that they're given or discipline or something like that, that the parents then show up at the school and say, you don't have to listen to this teacher. And so it seems like, you know, the the breakdown on that side was already kind of happening and there's no now cooperation or trust between these two pictures of authority in a child's life. What is what is the effect of that? I mean, the effect of that is that kids don't see their their parents and their school as forming one kind of cohesive moral authority. They sense dissonance between the two. And there there's nobody. I mean, most humans have a knack for it, but kids especially have a, a particular knack for sniffing out like moral hypocrisy. <laughs> right. And the adult authority structures around them. And tend to default towards a, a natural and, and frankly, probably healthy disrespect of, of moral hypocrisy that they see around them. And so this, as you said, Naomi, I mean, this isn't the anecdote that I just gave, the practice that was had wasn't anything especially novel. It's been a trend that has been in the works for a while. But these policies, either directly in those ca- the case of those trainings or indirectly in the assumptions made around like, oh, any unequal discipline is inherently the, the fault of a fundamentally unjust school exercising its authority right. must make the student disrespect the school further. Yeah. yeah. But Max, play this thing out because this is the challenge, you know, for folks on the ground who are actually trying to solve this problem, right? So let's say you've got a situation, there are racial disparities and suspensions, and someone comes and says, that's the proof of structural racism. And then you say, wait a minute. There are a number of these kids who are in single parent homes. They you know, typically have absent fathers. And you say these things in earnest, right? And then your opponent says, you're blaming the victim, right? What do you do? Help, help that person who's actually trying to solve this problem with data on the ground saying, I'm sensitive to your, you know, your accusation, but there's different data. Like, how do you play that conversation out in the real world? I might partly dodge that question, Ian, by pointing out that it's actually a much harder conversation than that, because the conversation is frequently not just taking place between two individuals who are discussing policy, but taking place between a, quote unquote, civil rights or human rights body at the state level, in the case of Minnesota, or the federal level right now with the Assistant Secretary for the Office for Civil Rights, where the accusation of we think your policies are racist come with a threat of revoking federal funding and come with a threat of very bad press if and when the existence of that investigation is leaked to the press. And if you're a school administrator, what you did last time around in this case, in the Obama administration, and maybe what you'll do frequently this time around is you cave. You say, I don't want bad press. I don't want this intrusive investigation. I don't want any risk of losing this money. I will agree. I will go with it. now. The way that the conversation actually could be resolved productively is, I mean, A, trying to to insist that these social realities matter, pointing out to the person that they recognize them in in every other walk of life and every other strata, and it's just inconsistent that they are basically arguing that that, that poverty and, you know, societal systemic injustices that they identify don't matter for this. It's it's just a strange thing you can point it out. But then I think the, the most effective thing I've found is, you know, to ask, like, so are you, do you really think that these individual teachers are that racist? 
because it's much easier to to allege systemic racism than individual racism. It's much easier to say, oh, Pelham Middle School is racist than it is to say Mrs. Smith is racist. (laughs) So there you can personalize it. You can maybe start to turn the person and then you can further ask. So do you if you don't think Mrs. Smith is is horrifically racist, do you think that maybe her do you think her decisions would be better or worse off if she were making them with less yeah. of an eye towards how to handle the classroom and more of an eye over her shoulder about what her principal might say or do? Do you think there's any way, and I, I appreciate the difficulty in answering that, do you think there's any way to elevate the voices of the students who now feel they're in a more dangerous learning environment? Like, how do we, how do we get those voices into the mix? Yeah. So one, one thing I've, I've proposed in an AEI paper, but I also proposed it in a, in a Wall Street Journal op-ed around the Yunkin win, I think is a, a simple, easy step. You could take it in Pelham, state leaders could, could make it nationwide, is just to administer semesterly, anonymous, very basic physical safety surveys with open-ended response. I've spent years, I spent a lot of 2017 and 2018 and part of 2019 looking for every school climate survey I could to try to gather as much data as I could as to what happens in districts when these policies are implemented. And, and data in general was pretty scarce, publicly available data. But the scarcest thing was free response of teachers to what was happening. And the stories they would tell would be horrific. You know, you would hear teachers say that, you know, my principal said that they're they couldn't send a student to the office unless there was blood. Teachers would say, like, it's fine for kids to throw rocks at students. Teachers would say, we caught a student with a knife and we just took the knife away and, and, and gave him back to class like nothing happened. All of those stories made a lot of news. And but there were three of them. <laughs> student, the voices of students and teachers could be heard if the voices of students and teachers were actually recorded in a way that they felt comfortable speaking their stories. And then if you can get that feedback loop from students and teachers to parents and from parents to the school board, maybe you can start pushing for more action. I mean, unfortunately, what these policies do is that they further push what is already a pretty natural human institutional urge from a school leader to to want to hide bad things about (laughs) what's going on. They have a natural inclination to that before they have a specific policy inclination to that. So this line of communication between students and teachers and then parents is broken but giving them a place where they can just tell stories in a way local news can pick up, local radio can pick up, local parents groups can sift through. It's probably the, the single easiest and most effective action I can think of. Well, one of the arguments you know, for this restorative justice is not just that it sort of tries to even out the racial differences, but also that it's seen as more rehabilitative, that the idea that detentions and suspensions and things like that are just ways of punishing kids, but not ways of teaching kids that they've done something wrong and having them understand the real consequences of their actions. So what is your what is your response to that? And how do we how do we think about doing that rehabilitation if it's possible using school discipline if we're not taking the approach we've been talking about? There are two tracks to that, right? There's there's like a there's a data and and research track answer and there's a kind of philosophy, the philosophical approach. On the data side, there actually has been one randomized control trial of the implementation of restorative justice in a district that across the board was lowering suspensions, right? Because the theory, as you correctly noted, isn't just, oh, we're going to end suspensions and everything being hunky-dory. The theory is we're going to decrease suspensions and phase in 
this dialogue-based thing to try to get to the root of the trauma that we think is really causing the harm and, and repair the social fabric, and this will make everybody better and happier, turns out in places where that happens, a couple of funny things happen that seem a little bit at odds, but really aren't at all. I mean, suspensions go down further. Teachers tend to think that they're doing a better job at classroom management. Students think the teachers are doing a worse job at classroom management. And academic achievement, especially for middle schoolers and especially for African-American middle schoolers in Pittsburgh, where this was studied, went down. So one answer is in the best, you know, the gold standard type study that we have for the implementation of restorative justice in an urban district, we have clear academic harms as a result. The other, though, is is more of a, a philosophical argument, and this is part of why I said earlier that restorative justice is is somewhat downstream of CRT. It's not, you know, you cannot necessarily draw that straight line from Richard Delgado and Kimberly Crenshaw to this, although Kimberly Crenshaw has written about this, but it is more of a moral sensibility that assumes that mis- child misbehavior is fundamentally a product of oppression and right. trauma, and that that traumatic oppression needs to be understood and articulated in order to be solved. And the justice that is restorative is trying to repair harm that is done to the child by the outside world. Now, that's not really the traditional moral conception that we have of kids and of mankind. The traditional moral conception is that that we are all kind of fallen creatures with tendencies towards the good and tendencies towards the bad. And children in particular need to have adult direction in order to achieve proper conduct. And that punishment, you know, shame, social shame, some degree of social stigma is actually constructive for helping students come to that moral understanding. In a way, the very notion of restorative justice stacks the moral deck so far that you just assume that the the alternative, which is said to be, you know, exclusionary discipline is inherently punitive as though there is no moral benefit to punishment. I mean, kids need to know where the boundaries are. Frankly, I think most people, if they take three steps back and think about it, would realize that, you know what, some childhood misbehavior is absolutely the product of trauma. And there are probably probably very good ways, but very targeted and very intensive ways that that could be addressed, that punishment is not appropriate for. But a lot of student misbehavior, I think anybody who knows kids who is taught in a school knows, if, if it's put to them directly, is frankly just status-seeking mischief-making. <laughs> they want to misbehave because that's going to get giggles and because that's going to like make them feel good and make their friends laugh. I like that phrase, Ian, status-seeking mischief-making. Yes. You ever experienced that in your schools? Uh, look, <laughs> part of the ethical learning process is to witness the consequences of those who violate those rules. You know, that's just, you know, and it, it's just frustrating when things that are so obvious are rejected. And that's what makes this conversation, again, the, you, you're saying it's hard to make that direct connection to critical race theory, but you know, you got to call it what it is. It is. And when you start with the premise of any racial disparity is racism, therefore you need race-based interventions, this is what clouds people's thinking. You just ignore all these other basic lessons about how kids develop. And the other thing with the suspensions that's always struck me is that that is the way often to get a parent's attention. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of the in-school sort of like, you know, oh, you know, they were put in a corner, you know, told they needed a timeout or whatever it is we're doing in school. 
for a lot of parents, unless it rises to the issue that affects them directly and that now they need to stay home with their child, they're not paying attention. So if you want to sort of get that kind of joint moral authority that we were talking about earlier, sometimes that's a consequence that does that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm kind of to, to hit both of your points, Ian, I, I want to be very clear when I say it's difficult to make, I don't mean it's not there. It is there. I mean, the, the receipts are there. I, I'm documenting them in a forthcoming chapter for a Heritage Foundation book. It's just that it, like, these instincts developed in parallel to and not necessarily directly as a clear right. genealogical outgrowth from. But to your point, Naomi, I think another thing that I, I'd frankly be remiss, and, and I fear I almost was remiss in not mentioning, is that what you just said, this notion that suspending kids, disciplining kids is a way to get parents' attention and reinforce behavioral expectations. That's what teachers think. Teachers have been surveyed on this. They've been surveyed in Philadelphia. They've been surveyed nationally by the Fordham Institute. And they overwhelmingly say, I think by about, you know, I think about 80% of teachers say that suspensions are useful to send a clear student, clear signal to the student about his behavior, send a clear signal to other students about misbehavior, send a student a signal to the student's parents about misbehavior. And teachers overwhelmingly think that this works. And so another another thing to Ian's point of, of how do you go about trying to convince somebody otherwise is, is you can say, well, teachers overwhelmingly disagree. Do you really trust these kind of ideologue activists who are looking at disparities and not really reaching nuance or sending and saying something that doesn't make sense? Or do you trust teachers on this? You know, the, the pro-teacher position, the easy pro-teacher position is to say, well, if, if teachers overwhelmingly think that this works, maybe we don't assume that they're wrong and force them to not be able to use it as a tool. Yeah. All right. Well, those are, I think, all the questions that we have for you, Max Eden. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can find episodes of the podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks again. Max, thank you. Great stuff. Always a pleasure, Ian and Great to see you guys.